Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I'm joined by two wonderful guests. First, the Director of the Historic Sites Division for the Church History Department, Jennifer Lund. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here again. And joining us again is our good friend, Sarah Eyring. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. In our discussion today, we're going to be talking about chapters 28 through 30, which are some difficult, violent times in church history. Jenny, can you help set the scene for us? In previous episode, we talked about the settlement of Adam on Diamond. There are homes that have been built there. What's the scene, what's happening, and in particular, what's going on with voting? As you mentioned, this is a very difficult period in church history and very complicated and difficult to understand. There are significant pressures building on the saints throughout this time period. We talked earlier about Sidney Rigdon's fiery sermons that he delivered, as well as some of the other challenges the saints are facing with dissidents leaving the church. But now we're going to really talk about the pressures from the Missourians. And we have really two different cultures that arrive here. A group of Southerners come out of the American South that are main settlers in Missouri. Northerners that are coming, main group of Latter-day Saints who are living in the area. So we have clash of cultures, politics, economics, and of course religion are really the main drivers in this kind of conflict. And there's so many of these these northern Yankees coming down to Missouri that they just keep coming. That's right. And the saints are leaving Ohio, and they're on their way. So the Missourians, who already have these concerns about Mormons, are now seeing hundreds and hundreds of them pour into these counties in northern Missouri. And so That is becoming a real issue. And so we're starting to get more and more harassment of Latter-day Saints by Missourians. And so on August 6th, which is Election Day, uh, when Mormons in uh, Davies County go to vote at Gallatin, there's a whole group of Missourians there. And you have to understand, this is another one of those points where Election Day is very different today than it was in that time period. Election Day always involved a lot of alcohol and actual electioneering, campaigning, right there. At the polling site. At the polling site. Right. A couple of things that aren't permitted today. And so it's very rough and tumble. So the saints go to vote. They're there as a group because they're a little concerned about their safety. And when they go to try and vote, there's some opposition, a punch is thrown, and pretty soon we have a fist fight going that actually lasts just a couple of minutes, but people are left bloodied, and they're told they can vote, but they don't dare go in the polling place. Let's listen to a little quote here uh, from Saints about this experience of trying to vote in Gallatin and what they experienced. The Saints were outnumbered four to one, but John was determined to protect his fellow Saints and their leaders. Spotting a pile of fence rails, he grabbed a thick piece of oak and rushed to the fight. Oh yes, you Danites, he cried out, here is a job for us. 
He clubbed the men attacking the saints, measuring each swing to knock his opponents down, not kill them. His friends fought back as well, improvising weapons from sticks and rocks. They knocked down anyone who rushed at them, ending the fight after two minutes. It honestly feels like a bar fight to me. You know, there's a bunch of drunk guys hanging around the polling station, throwing rocks and punches. And that's pretty much what it was like. And one of the candidates had fired everybody up, condemning the Mormons and saying they shouldn't be allowed to vote. And that just kind of ignited everything. And he was mad, if I remember right, from Saints. He had thought that the Mormons were going to vote for him. And they'd switched their allegiance. And so now he's just going to rail on them to try to fire up the opposition. Yes. We have the candidate standing on a, a, a barrel of whiskey and he's firing up the opponents of the Mormons, and it just ends in this big fight that spins out of control. But as you said, it only lasts for a couple of minutes. One of the real concerns of the Missourians is that the Mormons, there are so many Mormons there now that they can sway the vote. And if they vote as a block, they all agree on whom they're going to vote for, then that can really sway an election. So that's a real concern for the Missourians, which is understandable today, but the way of which they go about resolving it is not so understandable with violence. Can you tell us a little bit about the incident with Justice of the Peace, Adam Black? So after this incident, the Latter-day Saints become very concerned that they're not going to be treated fairly before the law in this area. So one of the leaders of the Danites and several of his men, I think there were about 40, go to Black's home. Black was a justice of the peace. And so they try and force him to sign a document saying that he will ensure that the Latter-day Saints are treated fairly before the law in, in uh, that county. Black refuses to sign. And so later in the day, Joseph Smith, with another group of men comes, about a hundred men show up at Black's house. It's obvious bit of intimidation to come with that many men, and they again try and get him to sign this document, and he refuses. But he finally, after Joseph Smith goes in and negotiates with him, they finally, he finally agrees to write a document of his own. Joseph says, fine, if you don't want to sign ours, make your own. And so he, he, he writes out some sort of statement, but it's really to no effect. Yeah, so it's to, to no effect. But then this becomes a major issue in the conflict between Mormons and Missourians because the Mormons would show up with a show of force and try and force a local justice of peace to sign a document. So that becomes something that really sticks in the craw of the Missourians. And the Mormons are just trying to protect what they believe are their civil rights. So I'm curious about the title of the chapter, which is Tried Long Enough. Which aspect of the story does that reflect? So the title of the chapter really means we've reached a turning point. So up to this point, the saints have been mostly passive in dealing with their neighbors in this area. And now they've reached the point where they realize that they are not going to be able to protect themselves unless they take a stronger stance. And so they have been tried long enough. This is a new era in their relationships with the Missourians. Interesting. Speaking of this relationship, um, Governor Boggs is uh, the governor of Missouri, and Joseph reaches out to him. Let's listen to a little quote here for help that is requested. Joseph sent a plea for Governor Boggs' help, enlisting a friendly Missourian to carry the appeal. 
The messenger returned four days later with news that the governor would not defend the saints against attacks. Boggs insisted the conflict was between them and the mob. They must fight it out, he said. Boggs is quite a character. Uh, we do have to give him credit because he also refused to help the Missourians, the mob, who was trying to get state help from the state as well. So he did refuse both. He was trying to be a little bit neutral, but it's pretty clear that his... His sympathies. sympathies, that's the right word. Yeah. It's really clear that Boggs' sympathies were with the Missourians and not with the Latter-day Saints. This is another one of those moments where we have to remind ourselves that the past, as you've said, is a foreign country. It just seems so bizarre to me today that a governor would say, yeah, just let violence happen. I'm not going <laughs> to send in any help. It just, It's just so bizarre. But here we are, we're on the American frontier, and in fact, the governor says, let them fight it out. Yes. It, it's just crazy. So we've got a couple things going. First of all, is it's, it is a culture in which that kind of violence is quite common, and also a culture which is right on the edge of the frontier. So Missouri is the last outpost before you hit what's called Indian country at the time. And so they are really the frontier. And they settle differences of opinion and issues with vigilantism. So when individuals take the law into their own hands to exact justice, at least in their eyes, to exact justice. And so that is really common in those frontier areas and common in the time period, common in the southern culture group. So we see that unfolding in this case. Can you make this real for us for a minute? Um there's a story, it, it's in chapter 29 of Agnes Smith. This is Don Carlos Smith's wife. H help us understand through her eyes what this violence actually looked like. So Agnes was a young wife and mother, and her husband was away. She was living at rather a remote location about several miles from Adamondiaman. And in the middle of the night, a mob attacked her house. They broke in, they dragged her from her bed, dragged her two little girls from their bed, just in their night clothes, forced them outside, and then they burned the cabin to the ground. And so just in those few minutes, she's alone, her husband isn't there, and she sees everything they own burned to the ground. She knows she has to get help. The closest help is probably going to be Adamandayaman because she can see that her neighbors are also being attacked at the same time. And so she, through the night, walks with two little girls, one on each hip. Uh, it's cold. Yeah, there's, uh, there's snow. There's she's, snow on the She's ground. essentially wading through snow. And she has to ford a river or a stream, but it's deep. It's waist deep. So she has to ford that waist deep river and finally makes it to Adamandayaman and help. When I read this chapter, I think our, a lot of our listeners will have the same experience. This was one of the hardest in the whole book. I literally sat with tears in my eyes, just, how can you do this to this poor woman? And it, it's going to get worse, actually. We're not to the, the most difficult part of this chapter yet. Let's listen to a little quote here about what Joseph thought. The sight of the refugees horrified Joseph. In his 4th of July speech, Sidney had said the saints would not go on the offensive, but if their enemies went unchecked, what had happened to the saints in DeWitt could happen in Adam on Diamond. 
Hoping to weaken the mobs and bring a rapid end to the conflict, the saints decided to march on nearby settlements that supported and equipped their enemies. Dividing their men into four units, church and militia leaders ordered raids on Gallatin and two other settlements. The fourth unit would patrol the surrounding area on foot. So this is difficult. We have members now on the offensive. And we're about to have something that's referred to as the Battle of Crooked River. Yes. So the, the Latter-day Saints do go on the offensive here. And you have to keep in mind that from the big picture, looking back, um, it's really the Missourians who are the aggressors. They start it, right. but the Latter-day Saints respond. And so we get into this movement of retaliating, retaliating one against the other with ev escalating violence. And so... We reached the point of Crooked River when a couple of men, I think it's three men, are captured by what is assumed to be the mob. And so they're taken into custody, and the Latter-day Saints know that they're being held. And so they form a group of men to go and rescue them. And the camp is camped at a place called Crooked River. And so the Mormons sneak up on them and launch an attack. And then what ensues is what's known as the Battle of Crooked River, Remembered primarily because this is really where we first get some deaths right. in the incident. So we have, I think, three Latter-day Saints and one Missourian who are killed in the battle, including David Patton, who is mortally wounded, and he was an apostle. The Saints retrieve the prisoners, but we later find out this wasn't just an ordinary mob. No, this was a state militia unit that we had taken prisoners from. So this is going to cause even more trouble. The reports get to Governor Boggs, and, well, there's some letters that are sent from dissenters, uh, Thomas Marsh and Orson Hyde, who send letters essentially testifying to the veracity of these, these stories or these exaggerations of the battle. What effect did that have? Well, the letters had a huge effect because here are two apostles writing to the governor to say... Yes, this is true. The Mormons are resisting, and they are on the offensive, and these things are happening. Now, those two apostles were deeply disturbed by this, which we can, I think we can all understand today, that when you move into this world of violence, physical violence, that this is a disturbing thing uh, to try and deal with. But Joseph sees this as a betrayal by those two apostles, that they would send this letter and the governor sees it as absolute evidence that this is true, and he is going to have to take some action. He's finally going to be forced to move his hand. Well, and the reports that have reached him are claiming 40 or 50 lives lost, and he takes the letters, as you said, as proof that this has happened, even though it actually has not happened. You just, you can feel this spiraling out of control. So following the Battle of Crooked River... Uh, it became clear to Governor Boggs that um, that he was going to have to do something. And so what he did was he issued what is known today as the extermination order. Now, that's really violent language to us today. It was used more commonly in that time period, particularly when it came to um, removing Indians. But the message of the document is clear that they were expecting the Latter-day Saints to leave. Now, exactly what the threat meant if they didn't, there's a little debate over that one. But the extermination order 
is the then is what is going to be the background to the saints leaving Missouri. Some people think it's related to the Hans Mill massacre, but there's good evidence that no one knew about that, that it had, there wasn't enough time for word to get from the capital out to these outlying areas that this uh, extermination order had they been They weren't issued. using it as an excuse. No, they were not using it as an excuse. Is one of the events that we read about in this, these chapters, the uh, massacre at Hans Mill. Can you describe that terrible event? In retaliation for Mormons pressing Missourians out of their homes in the nearby areas, a group from, from Livingston County came over the border into Caldwell County and attacked a, a little tiny outpost on the very edge of the county, which we know today as Hans Mill. It really wasn't a settlement of sorts. There were some Latter-day Saints who lived in the area, and there was a man there who owned a mill. And so some, some Saints had kind of gathered around that, that place. But there was also a group who had been coming from Ohio who were just camped there at that place. They, they really had just arrived on scene. They just not, arrived on not scene. Not even knowing all that's happening. No, and they'd been harassed on the way. And so they are camped there when a group of uh, 150, 200 mob members or local militia comes in and attacks the settlement, begins firing on them. Most of the men were at the blacksmith shop or they were close by, and so they ran to the blacksmith shop because they thought they could protect themselves from there. They'd stored some guns there. But the mob just fired right through the chinking in the cabin, and it was like they were trapped. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the, however long it took, there were uh, 17 men and boys killed and about another 13, 14, 15 people, including women, who were wounded. Wow. I'm going to play another little clip here, and I'm just going to tell our listeners that honestly this is a hard one to listen to. There's a woman, her name is Amanda Barnes-Smith, Um, She's one of these folks who is kind of trapped in this situation. She has three sons, and this little clip is about her son, Sardius. Another man spotted Sardius and dragged him outside. He shoved the muzzle of his gun roughly against the 10-year-old's head and pulled the trigger, killing him instantly. One of the mob turned his head away. It was a damned shame to kill those little boys, he said. Nits make lice, replied another. This is, it's just horrific. The Missourians have turned the Mormons into non-human. You know, they're they're just vermin to be killed. It, It just breaks your heart. It's brutal, and those boys were really killed in an execution style. It's a very chilling story. But I think out of that same story comes this kind of a, incredible story of hope because Amanda Barnes-Smith, who told her story many times later, uh, for her it becomes a story in which her faith is affirmed through the most difficult and trying circumstances because her husband's killed, Sardius is killed, and another son is terribly wounded. Alma is this other son, and his hip is blown away. Yes. He can't move. As we learn in the story, she sort of drags him to their tent that's been destroyed. The mattress is ripped apart. She lays down some clothes. She gets him 
laid down and she makes lie to clean his wounds, which must have been excruciatingly painful. And eventually he falls asleep, passes out more likely from exhaustion. That's what I'm thinking anyway. Let's listen to another little quote here from the book. When Alma regained consciousness, Amanda asked him if he thought the Lord could make him a new hip. Alma said he did, if she thought so. Amanda gathered her three other children around Alma. Oh, my heavenly father, she prayed. Thou seest my poor wounded boy and knowest my inexperience. Oh, heavenly father, direct me what to do. And what does heavenly father direct Amanda Barnsmith to do? Amanda is given the knowledge that uh, she should use the root of a elm tree. And so she sends her other son out to find some root, which she he brings back and she grinds it up and she makes a poultice that she inserts in in the wound and then wraps it up and cares for Alma. Alma, this takes a this takes a long time, but over time his hip is healed and he's able to walk and to dance and to do everything that a boy would need to do. I think it's sweet that even in the midst of these terrible, terrible circumstances and this persecution and suffering, that of course heaven is is still mindful of the saints and doesn't leave. And and when in this story Amanda asks for help, she does receive it. And that's it's hard to read these chapters and not wonder, you know, where was he- Heavenly Father and all this? Why would He let that happen? But there must have been some purpose to it because, um, like I said, there it, it seems that He is there. Yeah, I don't know if there's a purpose to it, but there's always the comfort and the support in the aftermath of something that is so horrific. That's like a great this. point. So we often focus on the story of the healing of Alma. Of course, the, the goods of these people had been plundered and ha- cattle and horses were stolen in the whole fight. And so she knows she needs her horses to get out of there mm-hmm. and to get to far west. And so... She has the courage. She's just got like a backbone of steel. And she goes to the man who stole her horses and demands her horses back. And she just takes them and leaves. And he lets her. Wow. She's an incredible woman. And I'm, I am so grateful that through saints that we were able to meet her and learn about her in this story. And I hope our listeners out there are also uh, enjoying being able to meet these people, these real people that made up our past, our shared heritage. When I think now, um, when I read in the New Testament about Christ's teachings uh, of having the faith as a little child, I will never think again of that story without remembering Alma Smith because he had that faith. And and I hope that, that we all can, in fact, learn from these incredible lessons, these incredible people um, in our past. Thank you so much, Jenny, for being with us here today. And thank you, Sarah, for joining us. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. This has been the Saints Podcast on the Mormon Channel. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. Thank you.